Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. We are in week four of our series, The Sex Talk. This has been an, uh, an interesting sermon series to teach. It's felt a little bit like walking through a minefield, but um, my hope is that it's been clarifying and challenging. Um, we do have, if you, if you have any questions, we do have an, a number you can text your questions into. That's 330. Put the number up there. Ooh. Is it not there? Maybe it's not there. Uh, what is it? 330-892-8882. If you have any questions and you feel like, man, they're just not covering what I thought they were going to cover, go ahead and text that in, and I'm going to do a Q&A Sunday in a couple weeks. All right? Okay, thank you. You know, like I've, I've said throughout this series, um, there are a lot of opinions about what sexuality should look like. But I think that, as Leslie Newbegin says, if the biblical story does not control our thinking, then we'll be swept into the story the world tells about itself. And my hope is that we would be swept into the story Jesus is telling about sexuality and the state of the world and the remedy that he brings. So today, as we talk about sex and how, how to honor God with our bodies, uh, just a reminder, this, is, this whole series is always about all of us. No matter where you're at, we have all been affected by the fact that sex and romance have become ultimate in our culture. Each of us in this room, we've been affected by this, right? The adultery that affected your family, the divorce for non-biblical reasons that affected your family, the the emotional affairs, the polyamory, the, the pornography, the lust, it's all part of this. There's also the emotional effect that some of us feel, right? The loneliness, the the sadness. The fear some of us have for our children, the anxiety over finding the right spouse, the, the sadness due to a broken marriage, whether it's the, the sin that we have chosen to do or the sin that someone has done to us, each of us have been affected by our secular age when sex became ultimate. But to all of us, I'm going to say this, Jesus holds out his hands saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. As an example of that, there's this moment in Scripture in John chapter 4 where, where Jesus has this interaction with a broken and marginalized woman. And uh, I've talked about this story many times, but I, I can't seem to help to come, but come back to it over and over again because it so perfectly shows the character of God. So one day, the story is, I'm sure you've heard it, one day Jesus is leaving Judea and he's headed to Galilee and most Jews would take the long way around Samaria to avoid their enemies, but he cuts right through Samaria, uh, enemy territory for the Jews. And he and his disciples end up in a, the town of Samaria. And there's a famous well there. Jacob's well is there. And um, Jesus was tired and thirsty, and so they stopped there, and there's a Samaritan woman there. At noon, which is strange. In this culture at this time, they would gather water either early in the morning 
or late in the evening in the cool of the day. But this lady comes at noon. And the reason she does that is it's the time where she would be least likely to run into somebody that would know her story. She is ashamed. And Jesus sits down and he starts talking to her and teaching her about worship. And at this time, it was considered a waste of time for rabbis to teach a woman. It was considered, quote unquote, a a profaning of sacred things to teach a woman. But here's Jesus in enemy territory uh, with this woman on the margins in the heat of the day. And he's teaching her about worship and about the Holy Spirit. So let me read to you some of the words that Jesus shares with her. We're in John 4, starting in verse 10. We'll read 10 to 14. It says, Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said. And this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. Notice how the hands of Jesus are outstretched to this woman. Come come to me and I'll give you living water. Come to me. Living water is this image of the Spirit of God. Jesus is saying, I can give you the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself, who is God in us. The Holy Spirit will allow you to drink deep of God. It's interesting because she launches into this thing. We won't look at it much today, but she launches into this thing about how there's these two mountains. Samaritans worshipped on that mountain. That mountain Jews worshipped on this mountain. Who's correct? Where's the right place to worship? She's saying. What's Jesus doing? He's inviting her into the most intimate place of worship. The Spirit of God in you. No longer the Spirit only in rooms behind walls in the temple or on some specific mountain, but the Spirit of God in you. Here at the well with this, this marginalized woman, he's saying, come and drink deep of God. Let's pick it up in verse 15. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water then I'll never be thirsty again. And I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, that's an interesting moment, isn't it? She wants this living water, right? Like, she really wants this living water. She's like, how do I get this living water? And Jesus doesn't say, okay, here's how you get this living water. Instead, he seems to take a right turn and ask her about her husband. He asks about her story. He asks her for some honesty. It's like Jesus is pausing and he's looking at her and he's saying, yes, the water is yours. You can drink deeply of this water, but tell me who you really are. What's your story? What's the brokenness in your story? And it turns out, Her story is complicated. She's had five husbands, and the man she's with is not her husband. What's the backstory there? We don't don't really know. Theologians kind of speculate on what could have been the backstory, but we actually don't really know. She's had five husbands. Have they all died? Has she been left a widow five times over? 
Did these men leave her? Were these men abusive toward her? And the man she's with now was not mar- she's not married to. <clears throat> and in such a traditional society, no wonder she comes to get water in the middle of the day. It's a defense mechanism. It's her going, I don't want to hear the gossip. I don't want to see the stares. I don't want to hear what people are saying about me. I don't want to hear the judgment. But Jesus sees her, and he wants to know her story. He already knows everything about her, right? But of all the people in this town, he picks her. Again, he's in enemy territory. He's hanging out with a marginalized woman in this small town, in enemy territory. And in her broken story and in the pain of her story, he offers her living water. He offers her the Spirit of God. Out of all the people in the town, he picks her. And he picks you. The hands of Jesus are outstretched for her, and they're outstretched for you. Come to me, and I'll give you living water. This is the offer. I hope each of us sees that this series is about all of us. None of us are clean when it comes to sex or temptation or any, any all this stuff. And where you have felt shame, where you have felt addiction or walked through addiction, where you have felt temptation, where you have been frustrated, where you have lived in pain, where you have been lonely, where you have been fearful. See, Jesus pauses. He looks at us. He sees us. He knows everything about our story. He knows the deep things that we've told no one. And those hands that were outstretched for the woman at the well, they're the exact same hands that are outstretched for you and for me. Come, drink deep of the Holy Spirit. Come to me and I can give you living water. That's still the message of Jesus. Jesus says, I'll give you life. He knows I've been working through the kind of the, the stats and the data on sexuality in our culture for this series. I just realized in a new way that the, the sexual revolution has, left, has really left us thirsty for real love. It's left us so thirsty for real love. Did you know, just an, an, an interesting little fact, did you know that the sexual revolution led to what historians call the golden age of porn? 1969 to 1984. That was the golden age of porn. Porn during those years was held in high esteem by film critics. And the idea was like, well, hey, this pornography could lead to a sexual liberation for men and women. It's going to transform our culture. 35 years later, nobody cares about the golden age of porn. 35 years later, as we are now able to study and observe the first generation of people with unlimited access to pornography because of the internet, For their entire lives, we are seeing the horrendous effects that porn is having on our culture. Now, nobody's talking about the golden age of porn. The sexual revolution has left our secular culture thirsty for real love. Like, where can I find true intimacy? And the whole time, Jesus' hands are outstretched. Come to me, and I'll give you living water. And as we drink deep, we're transformed. As we drink deep of the Holy Spirit... He begins to do things in us that are, that are beautiful as we drink deep of God. He then makes life start to grow in you. New fruit starts to grow in your life. Listen to the fruit of the Spirit. And you may know these, this list, but listen to the fruit of the Spirit. As you drink deep, this is the fruit of the Spirit that grows. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does the world need more of that? You bet. 
Think about the impact these words on the screen have when it comes to sexuality. When you drink deep of the Holy Spirit, he causes love, real love, to grow in you. The Spirit shows what a faithful and sacrificial love looks like. Not just a love that simply seeks out pleasure, but a love that's rooted in responsibility and sacrificial giving. Joy, not a, not a relationship based on pleasure or what I can get out of a relationship, but real joy in relationships. Patience, patience, not trying to live impulsively by gratifying our own sexual appetite, but real patience. Kindness, not using people for, to fulfill sexual desires, but real kindness. Faithfulness, the Spirit makes us faithful. Imagine a church known for their faithfulness. Right? No adultery, no affairs, no pornography. Faithful. Self-control. When it comes to sexuality, what an amazing fruit of the Spirit. Self-control. See, God is just delighted to start growing these in us. As we drink deep of the Holy Spirit, we are then, we're then transformed. Our ethics are transformed. Our character is transformed. Our trust in God's gift of the body, our trust in God's design for sex, we're transformed as we drink deep of the Spirit. And we are known for the thing, we're, we're known for things like kindness and self-control and faithfulness. When the world looks at the church, or even specifically when the local community looks at the upper room, do they say, oh, that's a bunch of faithful people? Those people are kind. Such kind and gentle people. When we're transformed, the world catches on. And this actually happened 2,000 years ago. Let me, let me tell you about the first real, the, the real first sexual revolution. At the time the New Testament was written, um, men in Roman society were allowed to basically do whatever they wanted sexually. Sex with prostitutes, sex with slaves, sex with boys. The only thing a Roman male was not allowed to do was have sex with another Roman male's wife. That was, that was offside. But anything else was permissible. So and then churches began popping up, popping up all over the Mediterranean, and the church taught their people that sex was reserved for the covenant of marriage. Think about how countercultural that would have been. Roman men able to do whatever they wanted. Here comes along this little tiny church. They're, they're followers of this different rabbi in Israel. They're called the Way. They're popping up all over the Mediterranean. And they teach their people to only express their sexuality within marriage. What does this mean? It meant that young boys, slaves, and prostitutes were safe around Christian men. It also meant the Roman Empire looked at Christian wives, and Christian wives could trust their husbands. Imagine thousands upon thousands of the, in the Roman Empire watching Christians and seeing something different about the way they are living. And at the end of the day, which sexual ethic won over the empire? 300 years later, what became the sexual ethic of the Roman Empire? It was the Jesus way. An entire empire was turned upside down. Starting off by this little group of Jesus followers, simply trusting that when they felt like they were on the wrong side of history, that they weren't. They decided that they would just be faithful to God's heart for sex and marriage, no matter how hard it seemed. Kyle Harper, in his 2013 book, uh, from, shame to shame, from Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. Okay, it's a real page-turner. Um, he argues that the Christian sexual ethic 
was a huge part of what transformed the Roman Empire. He said that uh, the, the Christian sexual ethic was simple. Sex was for marriage between a man and a woman. That's it. And he writes that this simple but clear ethic was a revolution that took over the promiscuity in the Roman and Greek worlds. He writes this. The most astonishing development of late antiquity is the transformation of a radical sexual ideology. For centuries, the possession of a small, strident band of vociferous dissenters into a culture, a broadly shared public framework of values and meaning. Vociferous dissenters. I love that. He's talking about the church there. By the way, I don't, I don't know Kyle Harper. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. He's a, he's a historian. He's saying this is what happened. There was these vociferous dissenters, and they grew and they grew and they became a culture, the church, the strident band of vociferous dissenters, a little group that kept drinking deep of the Spirit of God that would transform them from the inside out. They grew, and their sexual ethic was attractive in a, a promiscuous world. It was attractive to all kinds of Roman citizens looking in, going, that's what I want. How many women looked at those marriages and said, that's what I want? That's a place of faithfulness. That's a place of self-control. And the fruit of the Spirit began to change how they lived. Christianity changed the culture in part because the sexual ethic was considered better and safer and more freeing for more people. Christian ethics meant a profoundly improved life for women, children, the enslaved, and the poor. And what it was was just Christians for 300 years continuing to take on the responsibility to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. Take on the responsibility to be ambassadors for the kingdom of God. Allowing the Spirit of God to transform them. Just saying, come. Come. Jesus says, come. Just drink deep. He'll transform you. They'll change you. You just come. Drink deep of the living water. And it led to a true sexual revolution. Tim Keller writes it like this. He has an interesting way of saying it. He said, The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and they gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. They flipped it around. They were generous with their money. They were generous with their hospitality. But they were guarded with their sexuality. An early church document from about uh, 120 AD called the Epistle of Diognetus says this, describing Christians in the Roman Empire. It says, They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. They marry as do others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Listen to this. I love this. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws in their lives. They love all and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are reviled, and yet they bless. They ate with each other. They, they were hospitable to one another, and they welcomed in the poor to eat with them. They were generous with their money. But they didn't have a common bed. When our culture sees the impact of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, it will lead to a new sexual revolution. And that's something we should be praying about. 
Madeleine Engel, author of A Wrinkle in Time, she writes this. She says, We draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. That's it. We draw people to Christ by showing them a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Let's practice the compassion of Jesus as his body. When it comes to to being a church of compassion, I'd like to say we want to be an oasis, not a battlefield. An oasis, not a battlefield. The difference is, when it comes to a battlefield, there's two armies ready to march against one another in a culture war. That's what a battlefield is. We're going to have a culture war. It's a church against a secular culture. That's that's not a great idea. Instead of that, I would love to propose the idea of the church being an oasis, to be a people of care, compassion, and truth, the truth of Jesus in a world that is parched for living water. That's the Holy Spirit. There's just a sense of thirst that's being created in secularism, a thirst for living water. Could we be an oasis in a culture that is parched for living water? So when it comes to a battlefield, we are, we are, like, we are in a battlefield when it comes to prayer, right? We do battle the, the powers and the principalities on our knees in prayer. You bet. If you're talking about that kind of battle, absolutely we are in a battlefield. But not when it comes to a culture war. There are too many casualties in a culture war. And there's a better way. So how do we live this oasis-style experience? Oasis-type experience. How do we say to the LGBTQ community, come get to know Jesus? Come be a part of the family. Mark Yarhouse, who works with those with gender dysphoria, describes people as an iceberg. He says, oftentimes we only see the 10% above the water. There's 90% of the iceberg under the water. He says that's the way it is with the LGBTQ plus community. Sometimes we overreact to what's on the surface. If we meet someone who looks different than us or is in the trans community, we overreact to what they look like or how they're dressing. And it's kind of like, whoa, we don't know kind of how to process that. But there's 90% of this person, this person's life we get to know. We get to find out what their story is. This is Jesus at the well. There's obviously something going on with the woman at the well. She has some baggage, what might seem like some red flags at first glance. But Jesus dives right into her story. And that's what we get to do too. Because there's like 90% more to someone than just what's on the surface. So let's not overreact to the 10% on the surface. The LGBTQ community is asking, Would I be loved if I came to the Upper Room Fellowship? Would I be welcomed? Would I be accepted if I was honest about my sexual orientation or my gender dysphoria? Will will our church create a space for people to wrestle with this in the long run? To say, listen, I'm glad you're here. There's nowhere else I want you to be. Keep coming. Keep being a part of our family. This is an encouragement for us to take the long road. Are we willing to walk through complicated, messy years with our brothers and sisters? Are we willing to? Are we focused primarily on a person encountering Jesus first? We don't try to get somebody to change their lifestyle before they encounter Jesus. That's not the right order. 
First, someone encounters the love of Jesus, and then slowly the Holy Spirit works in that person's life. Are we okay if that process of the Holy Spirit working is in someone's life, called sanctification? Are we okay if that's messier or slower than we would like it to be? Listen, I love it when we pray and the Holy Spirit instantly heals people. I love it when we pray and the Spirit instantly does it. I love that, but sometimes we pray and God likes to take a long, slow journey. And sometimes we're like, well, it must not be, must not be that the Spirit's working. Is really, or are we, are we impatient? Maybe we're impatient. Maybe we need to learn some patience and believe that the Spirit is working. Just not in the exact way you want to see it happen. We are not going to have the same beliefs or ideals as the culture does about sexuality. For some of us who have been Christians for many years and we're trusting God's sexual ethic, it feels like the culture around us, you know, just they're not in agreement. We feel like we're in the minority. We feel like culture has decided that they have the moral high ground on issues of sexuality. That is happening. That doesn't change the fact that we have a responsibility to make sure that we are, the, we are a place of real kindness and real gentleness. And I keep saying that it's a responsibility because we represent Jesus. We are ambassadors for the kingdom of, of heaven. We act like how we saw him act in the scriptures. He's the one who we follow. He's the one we look like. He's the one we, we imitate. Romans 2.4 says that God's kindness is intended to lead to repentance. So we have to make that our posture. As Preston Sprinkle says, our greatest apologetic for truth is love. We're in fellowship. We're not looking at all to compromise on the truth of Jesus or the truth of the word, but our greatest apologetic for truth is love. So today I just want to ask you, If you have come today feeling hypocritical about your own sin, let's drink deep of God. If we've come today feeling marginalized, pushed to the edges, if you've come today feeling addicted or confused or lonely or self-righteous, let's once again drink deeply of the Holy Spirit, of the living water. If we're going to be an oasis for a parched, secular, hyper-sexualized world, We need to be changed first, right? We have to be healed and transformed first. We have to drink deeply of the Spirit first. As I end today, I just want want you to see the story of Jesus. Listen to this story for a moment. Um, In John chapter 19 on the cross, Jesus is being crucified. He's, He's giving up his life for the world. He's pouring out his love for the world. And in John 19, verses 28 to 29, we read this. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. What's going on here? The man who gives the living water, he's thirsty. Just picture Jesus. Think about Jesus for a minute. Think about the story. The one who had approached the woman at the well in John 4 and put his hands out and offered